The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Will Davies for the second part of our discussion on his new book, Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. We'll be talking about the role of neoliberalism in the rise of contemporary populism, the military logic of the internet and the nature of the Corbyn project. As always, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Paul Theory Other. And if you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, you can become a supporter via Patreon. You can donate from as little as $1 a month. And you can find the page at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Will Davies is reader in political economy at Goldsmiths. He's the author of The Happiness Industry, The Limits of Neoliberalism, and his latest book, out now from Jonathan Cape, Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. So, as we discussed last time, uh, one of the things you talk about in your book is the gradual breakdown of the Cartesian division between the body and and the rational mind. Um, And you argue that one of the contributory factors in that breakdown was the rise of neoliberalism. Um, and specifically, you talk about Friedrich Hayek's work and how he and others in the neoliberal tradition wanted to introduce a sort of a different understanding of knowledge, um, specifically one that's centred on the kinds of knowledge which we associate with entrepreneurs, so instinct, intuition, and, and so on. Um, is that a fair characterization of what you were saying in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way the the, the book is um, has a sets up two. Um, ideal types of what of what, what why knowledge is valuable, um, and in a way, if the the 17th century ideal of knowledge, as promoted by the early experts and early technocrats and so on, is that knowledge is a basis for some kind of consensus, some kind of public agreement, and that survives in the contemporary liberal ideas of someone like Jürgen Habermas and that sort of thing. Um, but the there's an alternative idea of why knowledge is valuable and that's that it gives some kind of advantage to um, one's own um, firm or nation or uh, individual strategy or something and that knowledge is valuable knowledge if it's something that I've got and you haven't got so that knowledge becomes a basis for strategic advantage or um, or commercial advantage of some kind now that I trace that in in various ways in the book I mean in in one instance of course it has a has a military history um, because the idea of military intelligence um, is necessarily something that is kept uh, secret, which is kept away from the enemy, that needs to be encrypted and has to be moved around via specially created channels and and technologies and so on. Um, But it's also what the early neoliberal thinkers such as uh, Friedrich Hayek and uh, Ludwig von Mises and others uh, were interested in. And what they 
particularly uh, placed particular trust in was that entrepreneurs, by spotting a, something before everybody else, by having some kind of first mover advantage, uh, might uh, and combined to a, a, a sort of um, you know quite a kind of visceral, almost libidinous force of of, of desire and and ambition that they could rearrange um, institutions of capitalism and society uh, around their own vision. And and this is what you know the the sort of heroic status of, of, of figures, the, the kind of famous entrepreneurs, you know, in contemporary oh. times, you think of sort of Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or, or these sorts of figures, is that they are not operating via the public realm in a liberal sense, but they are effectively using um, knowledge and insights and intuitions that are not widely shared, that most people don't know. Um, and this, you know, ultimately throws the status of public knowledge and public facts into into question in some way not doesn't necessarily undermine them but it in a way what the the lesson that someone like hayek was trying to teach through the the mid-20th century was that many of the forms of knowledge that drive progress within the marketplace are the ones that are not widely shared and that what makes markets such a dynamic and effective force for, for human progress is that they seize and channel um, and and uh, and reward the insights and the knowledge that uh, that are that are that are that are private to some individuals and not to others. And as I argue in the book, if you were to sort of take this mentality to its ultimate conclusion, and really it's in the financial sector where I think it, it sort of reaches its kind of, its, 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 its sort of purest form, then you look at something like high frequency trading, which, you know, eventually is kind of, you know, sees people doing things like investing in their own private cables under the Atlantic, moving their computer servers just kind of a few meters closer to the Atlantic, so that you can detect a change in a price signal kind of a millisecond before the rest of the market and and make money out of that sort of thing. So many of the most highly rewarded and remunerated figures in contemporary capitalism, such as hedge funds and so on, the kind of knowledge that they're using isn't knowledge that actually kind of creates any type of useful public depiction of the world. It certainly isn't a basis for any kind of public consensus about reality. It's a kind of knowledge that involves reacting and sensing and detecting things before everybody else. So it's purely in the realm of the of, of, of the speed becomes crucial to the cognitive apparatus of of that kind of of, of, of knowledge. And that form of knowledge is is uh, is therefore necessarily, um, I suppose, the the veracity of it is is going to be more dubious because it's all about prioritizing speed, right? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a kind of knowledge that is that is that is um, in flux the whole time. So it can be, I mean, in a sense, it's not a type of knowledge that um, depends on uh, public accreditation for its for its for its credibility or its its um, its value. Um, and it's not dissimilar to another big theme in the book is the role of of real time media. I mean, the, my, the book opens by talking about that event that I think we talked about in the previous interview of the, um, the the panic in Oxford Circus, where people were under the impression there was a terror attack going on. And the media was reporting that as what was going on, because they were operating in a real time environment, um, where facts are not really possible. I mean, the, the, the facts are kind of post hoc phenomena. And, and the more we become swept up by real time um, forms of cognition and sensation, the, the 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 lower the status of of facts will be in our society. So it's not that things are necessarily false when you're dealing in in knowledge of this kind. It's just that um, knowledge becomes more a question of 
of sensation towards the world of being able to detect change as it emerges and before others have detected it, rather than the capacity to create a, uh, a representation of the world in the kind of classically Cartesian sense. And, and for that reason, it, you know, it's quite interesting when you think about, say, something like financial markets, or for that matter, you know, di- other types of digital interfaces and so on, that the, the, the human being becomes uh, an embodied um, for uh, 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 the, the cognition that we engage in as, as human beings in this real time sense is necessarily very embodied. And, and Hayek was very aware of this, that actually, you know, great entrepreneurs are drawing on their instincts, their gut feelings, their um, you know, that they can be swayed by their emotions much of the time. Uh, and all of this is fine. The market can deal with all of this sort of stuff. You have to use all of the resources that you can when you're in a fast moving environment. You don't just use only your eyes or your uh, sort of mental um, skills of rationalization on sort of thing. You know, you are in a real time environment, you are drawing on all of your bodily impressions. And that's why I think it's interesting how, you know, traders in, in financial markets take neural supplements to try and enhance their powers of cognition by acting on their brains or the actual way in which um, the interfaces of the Bloomberg screens or whatever it might be that people are interacting with the market, um, uh, you know, how those things are designed becomes crucial to the ability to be on the ball, to react fast and so on. And one of the other examples I discuss in the book is the the interest that Facebook has in in haptics and haptics for those people who, who aren't familiar with the term is the science of um, physical um, uh, interactions with with computing basically that so something like a mouse is an example of a haptic that we are all familiar with is that you know the mouse enables you to interact on a via screens but using your body rather than simply having to constantly work via the the medium of of language and um and and, and text um and this you know in, increasing sense that to become immersed in digital environments involves having to draw on all of the Different aspects of our bodies, whether that be through wearable technologies, um, you know, um, various types of things like Amazon Echo that will detect your tone of voice and your movements and so on in the house and that sort of thing. So we are becoming uh, our cognition is is in, in a real time sense. Cognition is no longer as it was in in a Cartesian sense. Um, it becomes much more about feeling not just in the emotional sense, but in the sense of how we might feel your way around a dark room. Um, and that, in that sense, it becomes about um, having a, a being um, sensitive to change more than it is about constructing uh, credible depictions and maps. Does this military logic, which which forces you to move quickly because um, staying still and, and not acting on the knowledge that you've acquired, you know, effectively risks you know defeat and, and, and death, according to that logic. Um, does that entail as living in a sort of generally more risky environment or does the reintegration of, of the physical counterbalance that somewhat? Well, I think it I think it, it, it creates a sense of of uh, situations that are under control or or situations that are amenable to control but perhaps an inti- but a, perhaps a system at large that appears to be under no control whatsoever so i mean it's rather like i mean a, a classic example of of a control technology would be like a car dashboard or something like that which again operates it's a very sort of physical um uh, set of you know it's a tool that, that that we bring all of our body to our feet our hands our eyes our ears and so on um, and the, the, I suppose the, the sort of pleasure of driving a car 
is that um, one is in a in a kind of confined space that is under one's control. And I think that is a similar pleasure to what a, you know, the fact that we have this compulsion to look at our smartphones the whole time is a similar kind of pleasure that it is to to immerse oneself in a in a in a tiny little private environment which is under one's control um no doubt i'm not a psychoanalyst but no doubt there are all sorts of reasons why <laughs> these sorts of environments have a draw our attention in that way that kind of some kind of promise of a of a, of a world and, a, and of a self and a body that is under control but of course as we know from traffic and from um you know the the state of the public sphere in the age of Trump. That the the broader uh, kind of aggregate effect of all of this is is a sense of, of of chaos and and an inability to achieve control. So I mean the Keynesian era, which preceded the neoliberal era of the nineteen uh, before the nineteen seventies, depended on types of of technocratic authority that were classically liberal in some way. So that people would create a sort of these relatively static images of the economy. So what macroeconomics does. Um, and via the authority of the knowing subject who would work in the Treasury Department or the Central Bank and so on, would kind of change policy so as to steer this this thing in a different direction. Um, in a way, what shift to neoliberalism in the 1970s is to uh, discredit the authority of that classically liberal knowing technocratic authority. And of course, there were in some ways, they they deserve to have that, to be discredited in in, in certain respects, um, but to shift it much more towards the kind of instinctive, real time, embodied knower of the entrepreneur, the consumer, the investor, and so on. And that's really what um, Hayek's work, more than anyone, recommended, which was to say that ever since Plato, as far as Hayek was concerned, there'd been this kind of bias in the West towards trusting the centralized um, elite uh, that they have this abstract knowledge that is a kind of knowing that rather than knowing how to use Michael Polanyi's distinction with which Hayek would have been very sympathetic. Um, and Hayek was saying, well, why do we disdain, why do we have so much disdain for the knowledge that the person who is able to actually fix things and do things and can actually make things and sell things and kind of moves the prices around and so on and, and moves, moves goods and services around. All of these people are constantly using knowledge, but that really since the dawn of, of, of Western civilization, this, this kind of real-time embodied um, ground-level knowledge has been held in disdain. So there's a sort of populist instinct, I think, in Hayek as well, which is to say that the elites and the, 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 the snobs in the universities and the intellectuals and the socialists um, look down on, on, on the knowledge that is actually at work in society, uh, whereas what the market will do, and this, I suppose, is in some ways kind of frames aspects of the Thatcherite populist message as well is that the market actually takes seriously the the knowledge that people that the small business man has that the investor has and so on um and 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 that this will become the kind of basis on which the economy will be governed and that the that those those centralized liberal elites will will um have to step back it's interesting to hear um that Hayekian critique because it brings to mind uh, the libertarian socialist perspective that would critique the elitism of Fabianism or of or of Keynesianism on somewhat similar grounds. And and one thing that occurred to me when reading this part of the book was, although it's not something that you address particularly, but something that's occurring around about the same time as the emergence of neoliberalism is the critique that comes out of the counterculture of the 1960s, which uh, which also wants to reprioritize embodied knowledge in, in various ways. The thing is that, of course, there is a there is a left Hayekian, I don't go into this in the book, but there is a left Hayekian tradition that various people have, have developed. Um, there have been various 
um, socialist economists um, such as Oscar Langer and others um, over the 20th century that have tried to try to take up the arguments of Hayek and von Mises and turn them towards a socialist uh, destination, which is to say that, yes, we need a decentralized uh, economy because the centralized planner um, cannot know enough in order to actually govern capitalism effectively. Um, uh, but actually what we can have is or govern uh, an industrial economy uh, adequately. Uh, but what we can do is to use democracy uh, rather than the market. Uh, or we can have an aspect, a combination of markets and democratically governed firms will be, will be a way of decentralizing the economy in ways that doesn't privilege uh, capital fundamentally. And this is really what um, it's quite influential in the in the GLC. No doubt that shaped some of John McDonald's thinking. Uh, people like Hilary Wainwright and, and uh, Robin Murray uh, and others who had some contact with the GLC in the early '80s uh, would be familiar with this kind of argument. Um, and I think uh, you know that I think is something that that has to be has to be taken seriously. Um, just going back to the question of, of that kind of military logic that you talk about. So um, in the book, you describe how the internet is rooted in American military technology and uh, the technological advances that we associate with the nuclear age. Obviously, that's reasonably well known, but typically we don't think of that military inheritance as continuing to structure the internet and the, and the way we interact with it and, and, and with each other through it. Um, could you say something about that? Sure. Uh, I think this is becoming better understood now. I mean, there was when the internet became part of mainstream society in the 1990s, um, there was an understandable uh, but rather um, over-optimistic hope that this was going to revive some classically liberal idea of participatory democracy and so on. Um, and that um, involved appeals to e-democracy. It assumed that the, that the internet was going to be like the printing press, where only now it was going to be democratized and, and, and very, very low cost, which meant everybody could, could participate. And of course, there are still happy and, and welcome examples of that around. But I think that um, uh, there is, I think, so what are the, what is the, the, the military uh, origins of, of the internet? Well, I think there are sort of two things that need to be considered. First of all, is that the aspiration to automate computation um, as it developed over the 19, well, it, I mean, it originated in the 19th century, but there was a, the work of Turing and others in the 1930s, which imagined a machine that could compute numbers uh, and was then developed during World War II. This was driven and the investment and the technological innovations behind it were driven by the urgent and paranoid circumstances of World War II, where um, war was being fought from the air um, where um, anti-aircraft guns were not, uh, the human mind is not accurate enough, or is, kind of, is not powerful enough to be able to aim an anti-aircraft gun um, towards um, objects that are moving around in three dimensions at high speed. Um, the human mind can cope with war as it's fought in two dimensions, just about, <laughs> but it can't once things are moving around in three dimensions. And the um, the early developments of computers at, uh, in the United States during the 1940s were to deal with that type of problem. So it was uh, the need to accelerate powers of human calculation and prediction, because ultimately, of course, you could, if you could sit down in a university with a pen and paper and predict the direction of an incoming aerial threat, you could do it perfectly well. But the problem of doing it in real time um, is something that is 
that, that is thrust upon um, universities and experts by, by war. So there is a um, the, the need to uh, turn thinking and computation to something that computation that's something that happens faster and faster is something that arises out of a spirit of paranoia, really, uh, and of existential paranoia at that. Um, the second thing which is worth pointing out is that the earliest attempts to network computers or efforts to network computers in the United States to create the early internet or DARPANET as it was, were really driven by the need to distribute intelligence across the United States in case of a nuclear attack on a city so that you could have a nuclear attack on one city, but that the uh, ability to actually still retain the strategic advantages of, of, of computational power were distributed across um, the whole of the United States. So again, there's a sense that knowledge is something that has to be protected and moved around and networked in various ways so as to withstand the threat of an attack. Um, and I think really what I mean, as I explore in the book, I mean, the war renders, turns the public realm into a, into a source of vulnerability, really. I mean, the, the liberal public realm, um, in the sense of experts and intellectuals publishing their research and ideas via journals and books and so on and putting them into the public realm, becomes something that is quite risky in a state of war. And I mean, during throughout the Cold War, scientists in the United States were kept under very close watch by the CIA. And in the, in the Soviet Union, scientists were a serious problem because they had to be kind of, in some ways, they needed some of the the freedoms of, of the liberal public sphere in order to share and publish their their research, but they had to be kept under very strict surveillance and control the entire time. Now, I think that this, what, what happens as the internet has become part of mainstream society over the 1990s and 2000s is that the, the potential to use these technologies for forms of attack and defense and encryption and um, uh, uh, sort of disruption have really become clear again, over, particularly over the last 10 years with the rise of to 12 years, with the rise of social media and, 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 and these platforms. Um, and I think that what we're beginning to discover is that if the printing press was, I suppose, a, in its classically liberal sense, was a, a consensus machine, I mean, that doesn't mean that those consensuses are all good. Some of them might be very bad. But nevertheless, this one to many type of communication that was the printing press is a very good way of establishing an agreed account of the world that millions of people can share. But what the internet is has, is, is turning out to be is an extremely good dissensus machine, a, 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 a well, a trolling machine, if you like. Um, and this is what lots of people have explored in relation to um, the rise of, you know, the role of the outright and meme culture and so on. And, and memes themselves are in a sense, take some of the logic of, of war and bring them into democracy by because memes are effectively types of encryption that can do harm to people, but can also be relatively invisible to the people that um, are not aware of them. So I think that some of that, some of the some of the the, the capabilities of of computers, their 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 emphasis on speed, their emphasis on um, the, uh, the 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 power of network computing to move knowledge around at high speed and to avoid uh, attack has become part of our democracy in 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 many respects uh, by virtue of the fact that social media has become the kind of in some ways the the dominant logic of of democratic engagement. Do you think that the military logic of the internet was visible in its earlier years? Um, I mean, why do you think it seems so much more visible now than it did 10 or 15 years ago? Well, um, I suppose it was probably there. I mean, there's a, there's, um, there's a book by uh, Yasha Levine um, who's called, called Surveillance Valley, which is really, I mean, he, he argues in that that this idea that the internet has been weaponized is kind of nonsense because he, he argues uh, that the internet has always been a weapon of one kind or another. 
other. And actually, that moment in the 90s was was a, a really a, an ideological um, uh, piece of, of, of it was a it was a fiction in a way that the, the you know, America just won the Cold War and wanted to be at the center of some kind of new global um, uh, sort of Pax Americana or, or Enlightenment or something. And that the internet was going to play a big part of that. Um, and that the internet being an American invention and having its headquarters in California, that could that this could become the, the, the basis of a, of a new type of, um, of, of, of sort of benevolent American empire. Um, and so there was a lot of ideology surrounding it, just as Hollywood played a very important role in the Cold War. Um, but I think that Obviously, one thing that changed was the the rise of, of of social media from around about two thousand and six, seven, eight onwards, and the rise of um, the, the the multiplication of of, inter, of smart interfaces, both smartphones, but of course we're also going to see the the spread of of smart interfaces into into homes, cities, cars, and and and, and onwards. Um, and I think that this um, first one thing that that does is that it is the the amount of of, of surveillance has increased vastly um, as a result of the spread of, of particularly smartphones. Um, I think that the ability to to track and and aggregate data about behaviour and sentiments um, and um, uh, emotions has has risen um, hugely over the last fifteen years. So that's that's one important part of it. But I think that obviously the the disruptive aspects of social media the capacity to use um social media as a as a weapon um notwithstanding levine's claim that, that the internet has always been a weapon i think clearly one thing that has has become uh, visible over the last few years and this is partly driven by the, the the strong feelings of 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 anger and resentment that are felt in some of the political margins of things like the outright and so on is that the ability to use things like YouTube, Facebook, um, and other platforms to sow dissent and to spread conspiracies, conspiracy theories, is um, is huge. And um, the ultimately the accreditation mechanisms for 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 media content and for knowledge are not all that powerful. I mean, they were they were established as I explore earlier on in the book. I mean, they were established at a particular time in the 17th century when the accreditation of knowledge was something that went on in very, very small circles of uh, privileged white men, and they were merchants and gentlemen and so on, and they pretty much all knew each other, but there were, there were that few of them. Um, and um, we're now trying to still trust in the same types of accreditation mechanism in a world of, 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 of hundreds of millions of people who can, can ultimately um, uh, well, ultimately, they can they can spread lies and, and misinformation, and and we also hear about the sort of things that that the Kremlin is is said to be doing in in relation to information war. So that that sheer capacity for dissensus, uh, I think, has been there all along, um, but it it takes a mixture of of of, of political resentment um, and uh, I suppose a certain amount of experimentation before its full potential becomes clear. Do you think that there was a degree of complacency regarding this on the part of the radical left? Because obviously the left has always had a pretty firm critique of the mainstream media. Uh, and, and so I think there was a tendency, and I, you know, I experienced this myself, 
to think regarding fake news, uh, something like, oh, we've always had fake news. Um, you, you know, this is just a different iteration of it. Um, and almost that it's merely the democratization of, of something that already existed. And, and that perhaps only now is there a, a greater recognition of the danger and novelty of, of fake news on, uh, on the left. I think, uh, I, I don't know, you see, I don't know. Um, I think that's, that's true in a, up, up to a point. I suppose one of the one of the uh, errors maybe that some uh, Marxist thinkers have made, and I suppose I'm thinking people at Hart and Negri, is to think that they have this whole notion of the multitude, um, which is that the human um, affects across vast numbers of people will tend in the same direction in some way, because everybody is, uh, everyone who is oppressed and everyone who suffers will eventually become some kind of, in, in Marxist terms, uh, not just a class in themselves, but a class for themselves. And that's the, that's the crucial moment in, in a Marxist analysis of, of, of class mobilization, is at what point do you realize that you, you, your, your alienation, your pain is the same as others, and that it's going to mobilize you in the same direction. And I think that one of the, one of the difficulties, and this is where I think some um, right-wing thinkers, people like Peter Sloterdijk and others, um, maybe um, you know onto something. And I think or Nietzsche would be before Sloterdijk is that actually that what people you know sometimes people take their pain and they don't do productive things with it. They they do resentful and destructive things with it, um, and that they attack others who they um, feel um, jealous of, or they attack others uh, purely to bring them down to their level. So there's a sort of a a kind of negative sum aspect to exploitation and alienation that people like Nietzsche and, and Sloterdijk are entirely uh, aware of, but which are kind of more optimistic analysis of people like Hart and Negri would, um, uh, would, would not really account for because there's this sense that the multitude is going to kind of rise up and in a kind of vaguely consensual fashion. So that, that relies perhaps unthinkingly on a certain set of quasi-liberal assumptions about the fact that that um, that some sort of universality will arise, whereas we know, and I think it's perfectly clear to anyone who engages with with left wing um, uh, media and social media that the infighting and the um, the sort of attacks on those who who, who might who, who might be um, actually have lots of interests in common with one can actually be very very vicious indeed, um, and the ability to forge consensuses and and um, and alliances uh, across different types of, of 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 identities and groups can be can be very very hard. I mean the the book very very controversial book, but the book that has that has made this argument most vociferously is Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies, where she argues that a combination of identity politics and the internet been a gift to the right and has effectively destroyed any prospect of left-wing solidarity through a form of competitive victimhood and that book i think you know she's it's it's a very provocative book and i think that her own politics um is is dubious i don't um but i think that 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 there is an insight in there that has to be taken uh, quite quite seriously yeah, I mean, I was I was struck just today following the latest uh, Poppygate incident regarding Aaron Bastani's comments on the British Legion, and um, and that you know you're, you're, you can be sort of dimly aware that there are entirely different political cultures, but that it's it's quite easy not to encounter them a lot of the time if you're mostly interacting with other leftists. Um, and that there can be something quite shocking when one does encounter that other culture. Um, and I suppose that kind of thing would would also seem to contradict the notion of a shared culture that Hart and Negri would uh, be talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the one of the themes in my book, which is about 
um, about pain, human pain, and and what kind of philosophical and, and political and and physiological phenomenon is pain, um, and it's been it's always been a it's always been a problem for philosophers. Um, it's a problem politically. It it, it it seems to mobilize people in certain respects, um, both in, when we're talking about either physical or emotional pain, or or really the, the in, in both senses at the same time. Um, and um, I think one of the difficulties with it is that because it defies yardsticks in various ways. I mean, the medical profession have introduced various ways of trying to, to put numbers on different forms of pain. But of course, it's a, a fundamentally um, uh, elusive uh, phenomenon for, to be to be dealt with in a in an objective sense. But is that you know once politics becomes organised around um, the distribution of pain. Uh, everybody can get in on that act, and it's it's worth. Um, I, I, I'm just currently writing something to do with the um, Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and 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 was just sort of reminded today um, of how uh, Donald Trump, when he was uh, the swearing in of Kavanaugh in in uh, October of this year, he apologized on behalf of the American people for the immense pain and suffering that Kavanaugh and his family had had endured, and and that I think you know that 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 is the the sort of that's the 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 great anxiety of basing politics and democracy in 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 the expression of and and the sympathy for pain is that that's where the, the, that tendency will end up is that ultimately the the powerful and the dominant can end up um displaying and uh, uh kind of i suppose sort of performing their their suffering far more ultimately than the week because the week won't even get listened to as much and i think again that if you the, i suppose the 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 thinker who explores this the best is really nietzsche in in thinking about the the, the sense of, of of christianity as as a um as, as really a, a sort of uh, a psychology rooted in in revenge uh, against uh, such that such that such that the sufferer ends up dominating the the, the alleged perpetrator in some way how would you want to situate the Labour Party and the Corbyn project within your analysis? I mean, obviously, there's the liberal take, which wants to conflate all different uh, left and right political tendencies together and to treat them as, as basically similar. Um, but you talk in the book about the nature of different crowds and the, the perspective on crowds from uh, the tradition of, of conservative crowd psychologists has a certain validity regarding some kinds of crowds, but that it wouldn't be particularly useful when thinking about, say, an anti-war march or, or a Labour Party rally. Well, I think um, the, I mean, the, 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 at the core of the book is a um, distinction that I introduce in, in chapter one, which I don't really kind of carry out these threads but i think it runs through the book is is that how um politics of representation is becoming um maybe not replaced but is being challenged by a politics of mobilization so that in in place of a of a project that emerged in the 17th century of organizing society around particular um facts such as statistics and particular representatives in the form of the judiciary and the members of parliament and so on, um, and uh, basing ideas of everyday truth in the facts as reported by the media and so on, we increasingly are in this 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 condition of, 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 of mobilization where the question is what 
what moves me what like which leader moves me which which um twitter uh you know t- t- the language of, of twitter is about following and leading and 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 uh, sort of constant flow so to to once politics becomes a state of constant mobility and constant movement which is true both of the way in which social media has changed our public sphere but also it's true of the way in which populist movements and i would i would call corbyn a Populist. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad sense. I think that that's the kind of type of politics that he's engaging in. And it's about trying to move people to join a movement. It's about trying to engage people who otherwise had lost interest in politics, That which is a, a sort of something that populist, populism does. Um, and it's about, um, it, clearly it has aspects of the populist um, characteristic, which is um, uh, about large congregations of people in some sort of communion with a leader um, in, in, who is uh, Corbyn himself. And, and that, again, doesn't have to be a, a bad thing. I mean, I think that one of the things I try to talk about in the, in the book um, is that crowds, um, I suppose, represent the beginning of that shift. Rep- crowds are an example of the shift from, from representation to mobilization. Or crowds, have, crowds, in a sense, are are a politics of presentation rather than representation. I mean, the point about a crowd is that these people are present at all. It's not that they represent someone who isn't there in the way that Parliament does. It's the point is that the crowd is the people who are present. Um, and that doesn't, I mean, that, you know, the, the, the very pessimistic conservative fear of crowds as expressed in Gustave Le Bon's um, uh, book on crowd psychology that I, I discuss is that, is that people are, are going to turn both fearful and violent and that it's these sort of flipping from fear into violence that, that characterises crowds. But of course, no one would say that about the, the anti-Brexit march from a couple of weeks ago where apparently 700,000 people walked through London. So that was seen as a perfectly kind of um, peaceful and, 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 and positive type of crowd assembly. So I think there are, pl- and there are endless examples of, of crowds that are that are entirely not just benign, but I think very, very kind of productive. Um, so I think that, we have to um, celebrate the fact that Corbynism clearly that's its greatest strength is its ability to it has a, it, it works very well within the politics of mobilization. Um, it works uh, it has it is in some ways cutting out the politics of representation in the sense that it is both rather suspicious of the mainstream media. It is not very well anchored in Westminster in the Parliamentary Labour Party, which is the traditional means of political representation. Um, and I think that its use of things like viral videos and so on, which have been seem to be very effective, um, work partly precisely because they circumvent the traditional means of representation in, in the London-based media and establishment and, and elites and that sort of thing. And that is all how populism works. And it is quite a, I think, a, you know, a, a threat to the Conservative Party and the establishment of a sort that people barely anybody uh, recognised. And that was what was became clear in the 2017 general election. What bothers me about Corbynism is that I um, I'm anxious about the capacity to govern via any of this sort of stuff. I mean, I think that um, the government, as we understand it, and I and and some of my book is about the invention of government in in the between sort of 1650 and and, and 1700. You get the invention of. Of, of public administration, effectively, of public officials and so on. And I think that anything that Corbynism can achieve, if it were to ever, if Corbyn were to ever become prime minister, will be dependent on on the ability to, to govern effectively via, well, certain types of department that maybe Corbynites are, are often suspicious of, the, you know, the Home Office and <laughs> the Treasury and so on, and the Bank of England. And I think that, I think that um, take, there needs to be taken seriously the 
the the need for a type of um, quasi-liberal left technocracy. And I mean, this is what Keynesianism was. I mean, Keynesianism was a left liberal technocratic project. Um, I don't say that because I'm I'm not de- anti democratic. I don't say that because I think that uh, that that um, experts and civil servants are, are brilliant people who are who are always right. Clearly, that's not the case. But I think that I don't see a um, I, I, what 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 slightly bothers me is that the more that politics of mobilisation succeeds in various ways in its campaigning form, the, to what extent will that make people extremely um, sort of lose interest or, or become suspicious of or frustrated with uh, the capacity to govern? Because there has to be um, a, a willingness to engage in the uh, in the detailed and sometimes quite tedious and frustrating aspects of, of policy formation, what the um, uh, Weber calls the, the the slow, what was it, the famous line of Weber's about the slow boring of hard boards, I think it was, something like that. But, you know, there is a, there is a dimension of modern politics that is not just about um, moving as quickly as possible and mobilizing and affecting and um, and and enthusing and and that's the that's the thing I mean that's you know in a way I wish that wasn't true but I I, just, I fear that it is true. Presumably, a lot of people around the Labour leadership are are very suspicious of the state bureaucracy because they will uh, take the view that these institutions and the people who staff them are not neutral actors who will just as happily go along with a socialist project as with a as with a neoliberal one. Um, presumably, you wouldn't want to be arguing that the Corbyn project should simply defer to those technocrats. No, no, but I think that they need to have their own technocrats. I mean, that's the thing. I think that you know the um, the the um, I mean, policies do have to work on some level. I know that the problem with Blairism was that it, that, that that reality became amplified into a, a kind of an ideology almost, um, so that it was what matters is what works, and, and you sort of start with 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 the, with some sort of idea of functionality, and and you derive your politics from there. But I think that policies that don't work <laughs> kind of just get left by the wayside. They don't happen. They don't they don't make any difference. Um, and I think. Um, that doesn't mean that, that that it's not possible to have populist policies. I think that what was really, I think that the Labour manifesto in 2017 was 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 brilliant in the sense that it um, had both an air of technocracy and a while while channeling that with a, a type of populism, um, and it did that principally by rediscovering universality. Um, and I think that universality is a very promising. Route through which to try and to 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 rethink the the rediscovery of a of a common world. I mean, ultimately, the 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 threat posed by um, both the fragmentation of our media, by the rise of what is being called post truth and a and a sense of a, a sort of mentality of conspiracy theories, and and also the, the I suppose the um, separation from the public sphere of of the. Ex- Extremely rich elites as they move further into their, their bunkers and their uh, offshore havens. Um, but is that we don't have a, a common world in, in the sort of sense that someone like Hannah Arendt was interested in it. And this is really the the what matters. I mean, whether people believe the statements as put out by the BBC or the Bank of England or something is, is of secondary importance to whether or not people consider themselves to all inhabit a, 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 share, a shared reality in a more kind of ontological or existential sense. Um, and I think that what is, I think, interesting about the idea of universality, which has a both a populist logic, but also a potentially a potential technocratic viability about it, if it involves things like, you know, there were things like free school meals for all, um, 
you know, universalizing various other benefits, um, free tuition for all. So the, all of this, what this does is that it demonstrates the fact that via the powers of the state, and it's still ultimately the Hobbesian sovereign state that many on the left have 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 and have spent hundreds of years deploring but nevertheless through that state um there is the capacity to change the reality for millions of people simultaneously which thereby confirms that they are actually inhabiting a, a shared reality now i think that the state can potentially do that in ways that that, that nothing else can and i think that that type of um and 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 certainly the market can't i mean it was precisely that capacity of the state to generate a shared reality that someone like Hayek was was very afraid of, because taken to its extreme, of course, it involved propaganda and totalitarianism and and and, and the enforcement of, of of shared regimes and and consumption behaviours across the entire population. But I think that the just small steps towards the uh, alteration of, of people's experiences in a positive way, to, even if they're quite small steps, like something like free school meals for all or something like that, confirm the very possibility that more one, more of that nature can happen. Whereas if you don't take any of those steps, um, which ultimately things like conditionality in, in the welfare state do not take those steps, then it becomes more and more plausible for people to um, uh, carry on as if they are uh, in, in a kind of solipsistic manner watching crazy stuff on YouTube, um, sort of subscribing to a purely entrepreneurial view of political economy where each individual is is, is ultimately determined only by their own desires and ambitions and, and, and sort of imagination. Regarding those universalist programs, um, there's obviously that critique which comes from the centre-left that argues that those kind of programs are a waste of money and that they don't properly conform to ideas of justice um, because things like free university tuition will benefit middle-class families that don't particularly need that kind of help. Um, but you would, uh, you would tend to dismiss that kind of criticism? Well, I think that the stakes are too high to worry about that kind of thing right now. I mean, I think that the um, uh, the, the the idea that we that politics can carry on in that Benthamite style of tinkering with um, with with calculations about welfare maximization, I think that um, we've got far bigger problems on our hands right now. And ultimately, the the the, the broader threat is of a is of a resurgent. Um, nationalism that drives that that, that roots um, the common world in um, the color of people's skins, um, and I think that this is the that that um, things that counteract that um, that threat need to be privileged above um, a type of Benthamite wonkery, which is really what that that argument is. And of course, it, it, it you know it, when when everything in politics came down to trying to keep debt repayments as low as possible so as to satisfy the bond markets, because that was the only thing that mattered in politics around about 1999 or something like that, um, then, yeah, that was that was the, the, the new Labour mentality. And, and it kind of made a certain sense at that time. But I think that, that the situation has changed. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you'd like to hear the extended version of this and other PTO episodes, please consider supporting the show. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.